Welcome, sports fans. You have entered the man cave of the one and only Fan Man, broadcasting from his lazy boy recliner somewhere in the Vale of Paradise known as Valparaiso, Indiana. Hey, sports fans. Welcome to the Fan Man Podcast. This episode is all about the NCAA tournament, where we review the Sweet 16 games in the Elite Eight, and we'll talk about the Final Four. And uh, we've covered all the games. After this episode's over, we've covered all the games in the NCAA tournament. I'm here with my college basketball partner and guru, Chad Lincoln. How are you doing, Chad? Doing great, Bill. How are you? Good. I'm doing good. I'm a little cold out there today, but... uh, it's also the first day of, of baseball season, so that was good too. And uh, been checking on some scores and checking on how my fantasy guys are doing. So we're back in the swing of baseball. And yep, uh, yep I'll and be we'll, there with you. Yep, and we'll be covering baseball as well here on the Fan Man Podcast as the season develops there. And uh, but before we start the show, talking about the NCAA tournament and so forth, there this you know the Sweet Sixteen, the Elite Eight. Um, we got some news today that Hall of Famer. Roy Williams, the head coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels men's basketball program, is retiring. And um, what a coach Roy Williams was. He's got more than 900 wins, three national championships, and a legacy built on 33 seasons of success at two of college basketball's most storied programs, the University of North Carolina and Kansas. Now, Roy spent 18 seasons with UNC going 485 and 163 while leading the Tar Heels to national titles in 2005, 2009, and 2017. Roy uh, ranks fourth all-time among Division I coaches and wins with 903 uh, wins and 264 losses. That's a 774 winning percentage. He was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 2017, and he's the only coach in NCAA history to post 400 wins at two different schools. Now, since taking over uh, North Carolina and Chapel Hill, Roy Williams has had 21 players taken in the first round of the NBA draft, the third highest total by any college coach in that span, trailing only John Calipari and uh, Coach K from Duke. So. Roy Williams uh, retiring. And uh, I had a feeling this was going to happen, Chad. I mean, it was a rough season for North Carolina, dealing with COVID. Uh, you know, the COVID outbreak affected everybody. And 33 years, and he's got, you know, he's got his national championships. There's really nothing for, really for him to accomplish anymore. And um, probably pretty good, pretty good for Roy Williams to just kick back and, and just start watching some college basketball, right? I definitely agree with you. The man had a wonderful career. It was like always talked about in terms of he did things the right way and he got on his players as a teacher rather than just a coach. Like a lot of the coaches out there, they're basically just worried about their records and how they are as a coach. He was out there teaching the game, teaching how to be a man in the world, be ready for what was to come in life. And that's why a lot of his players stayed. Yeah. I mean, he could have been one of those coaches that every year he had a bunch of one and dones, but because of the type of person he was, he kept you around. 
and the parents appreciated that when they knew that for four years their son was going to be with somebody who was going to teach them the way of the world. Right, and that's a good point because if, if you watched North Carolina basketball, always teaching going on, right? Not a lot of – Roy wasn't a yeller. I mean, he'd have occasions where he would yell a little bit, but he wasn't a yeller and a screamer. He was a, he was a teacher. When he saw something going wrong on the court, he tried to correct it right away so that error doesn't come a second time, right? Exactly. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing too about it is that he, he took over for a legend in Dean Smith – and that was, you know, as good as North Carolina has always been, you know, being able to recruit and so forth. I mean, he took over a program from Dean Smith. And all you got to do is look at this, the place where they play. It's called the Dean Dome. So a lot of, I mean, that, that should tell you what kind of pressure Roy Williams came in there with, you know, taking that job over. And uh, won three national championships in just a tremendous career all the way around for Roy Williams. And I guess the question becomes now... And maybe it's, well, maybe it's not too early. we got to start thinking about, like, you know, who's going to get this job because this is a coveted position, like one of the best jobs in the country, right? It sure is right now. And one of the names that I've heard being thrown around is Jerry Stackhouse at Vanderbilt. Well, okay, yeah. They're they're thinking bringing in a former player Mm -hmm. that everybody knows from recent times that's a current coach. So it's not bringing in a former player like a uh, Eric Montross or um, like a Tyler Hansbrough type right. that hasn't coached before and saying, here's the reins to the, to the building. Go for it. Yeah. There's no way in heck we're ever going to see Michael Jordan coaching them, right? No. There's no way. Cause the problem that you have... <laughs> Talk about the tournament? Let's tip this thing off and get going. Yeah, let's get going with it. And, and we're going to start with the Sweet 16. We're going to walk through each Sweet 16 game, and then we're going to walk through the Elite Eight. And then we'll talk about what's on tap uh, coming up here in the Final Four. So the first game we're going to talk about here is number uh, 12 seeded Oregon State 65, number 8 seed Loyola 58, and um, Loyola... You know, both teams scored a lot of points in the second half, but the first half of that game, Loyola couldn't get out of the gate. Ethan Thompson for Oregon State, 22 points, four rebounds, four assists. Cameron Crutwig um, for the Beavers, 14 points. I'm sorry, for Loyola, 14 points, 10 rebounds, and four assists. Now, the Beavers had just one point at the first media timeout and missed their first six shots from the field, but they held serve on, on the defensive end of the floor and started to find some success once Loyola's wing, uh, Lucas Williamson, the Missouri Valley Defensive Player of the Year, went uh, to the bench with two fouls. Oregon State finished the first half on an 11-0 run to take an eight-point lead into the break. The Beavers never trailed the rest of the game. Senior guard Ethan Thompson carried Oregon State for stretches on the offensive end, finishing with 22 points and four assists. The Beavers were... An amazing story. They needed to win the Pac-12 Conference Tournament to make the NCAA Tournament. And they were down by as many as 16 points in the quarterfinals against UCLA on March 11th. They came back to beat the Bruins, then upset Oregon and Colorado to win the league's automatic bid. So um, we're going to talk about Oregon State again. But um, this was a nice win for Oregon State. You know, I mean, they're the 12th seed. Loyola, they said, was, you know, should have been seated a lot lower than eight. 
And uh, they come up here with a nice, nice win, huh? They did. I mean, Oregon State came ready for this game. I think Loyola was riding on the coattails of Sister Jean a bit too much and just kind of riding on the 2018 year when they went to the Final Four and eventually it just got to a point with them where everything just seemed bigger than what it needed to be. The the rim got smaller, but yet they kept fighting until the gas just ran out. Like, they just... You could see in their legs and their in their body language and everything that the gas was gone. They they were not going to be able to get a refill in time to do anything in that game. Yeah, and the and the thing about Loyola, you know, their nature is to get off to a good start, right? Start popping those uh, three pointers from outside, working it into Crut to Crutwig and uh, playing some solid defense. But none of that was going early, going on early for them because of the Beavers, right? Yeah, they were they were basically. Uh, defending the perimeter so that you couldn't get a pass around them. No. And it, it affected anything that Crutwood could do on the inside. And then when he tried to go to the outside to try to help out, they just wouldn't let him through. Yeah. And I think this whole story by Coach Tinkle, I mean, it's it's kind of an amazing thing what he's pulled off. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is a team that nobody expected to go as far as they did. And, and the adjustments that they've made along the way in some of these games have been something to keep themselves in there. The guy's always working the sidelines, isn't he? He definitely is. He, he's letting the guys know what they need to do, that he's paying attention, that he's not letting up on them in the sense that it's like we're down five or six points, figure it out yourself, guys. I don't know what to do here. He knows what to do, and it's basically stick to the game plan that we have, and everything will work itself out. Yeah, yep. And it's done that. Yep. So Oregon, Oregon State moves to the Elite Eight, and we'll talk about them in a little bit. Our next game is number one seed Baylor, 62, number five seed Villanova, 51. And Villanova had a seven-point lead at the end of the first half, and everything was looking pretty good for Villanova. Baylor, you know, off to an unusual uh, rough start. But, man, in that second half, we saw <laughs> why Baylor – only lost two games during the season. They really turned it on in the second half. And Villanova had, were struggling, you know, struggling shooting in the second half. Jermaine Samuels for Villanova, 16 points, four rebounds and two assists. Adam Flagler for Baylor, 16 points, three rebounds and an assist. Flagler was the surprise leading scorer. Uh, Baylor, which came in, came in as the nation's leading three-point shooting team at 41%. You know, won this game despite making only three of 19 against Villanova's ever-shifting 2-3 man-to-man combo on D. But what was different in this game, they were going into the paint, Chad, right? They were. It it was an unlikely thing for Baylor to do, but they did exactly what they had to do. If the perimeter was getting shut down, Villanova wasn't going to stop you on the inside because of the height and the speed that Baylor was playing at. Right. Right. Um, Davian Mitchell, a 46% shooter from three this season, was over three from long range uh, on a day where he had 14 points. Uh, Jared Butler scored nine on one for nine for three. And Macy Oteague had five points without a three. But the game changed midway through the second half when Baylor started pounding, like we said, inside. The Bears took a six-point lead with a 14-2 run, during which not a single point came from the outside of the arc, just kept going inside, driving to the basket. 
Uh, Baylor outscored Villanova 40-32 to in the paint for the game, and their defense picked up two. Uh, Baylor held Villanova to 37% shooting in the second in the second half and 0 for 9 from 3. Um, the Wildcats had 16 turnovers, almost double their nation's best. Coach Jay Wright's team scored 10 points over the final 11 minutes. And the Wildcats, again, got you know 16 from Samuels, but only 3 from Caleb Daniels on 1 for 11 shooting. And as that second half was going... If you were watching, looking at, you know, they would flash to Jay Wright a few times. And, you know, Jay Wright had no answer for what was happening. They were just getting out outplayed in the second half, you know. I mean, all the way around, turning the ball over Villanova. Uh, you know, Baylor scoring, you know, in the paint with a multitude of different guys. Teague, Butler, Mitchell, Flagler. They're all clicking on all cylinders. And uh, Jay Wright, you know, had no, you know, he kind of acknowledged, you know, during the last few minutes of that game, hey, there's nothing we can do here. Yeah, he basically got out coached by somebody who paid attention to the film that closely to find out what things the Big East was doing to Villanova to shut them down, to almost keep them out of the tournament altogether, other than COVID itself. Um, just what things Villanova was going to struggle defensively on, and that was inside the paint. They yeah. were not going to stop you once you got in and started pounding there, and it showed with the fact that Baylor outscored him by eight points in the paint. Yeah, yeah, and um, it was a fun, fun game to watch too. I mean, what you know, when Baylor's basketball, you know, and I know this is this is gonna sound crazy because you know they are you know the two best teams I think Gonzaga and Baylor right now. I mean, they're both. It's like a beautiful thing to watch when both of those teams are playing good, isn't it? It's just like a great, a great. They both play great basketball. Yeah, it's like watching a fundamentals video on how to play basketball the right way. Yeah, yeah. They both do it so well and do the things that a lot of other teams refuse to do because they're like, well, everybody's going to get more excited about the three-pointers and the dunks, not the easy under up-and-under uh, layups that they'll get or the, the 15-footers or the, the hook shots in the paint. Yep. Like, that's not going to get the crowd going wild. Yeah. Not like the dunks and the threes. Yeah. Yep. All right, so then Baylor moves on to uh, the Elite Eight. And the next game we'll talk about here, uh, and now this team, you know, I mean, when you think about all the things that have gone on in the tournament, sometimes some of the best memories of an NCAA tournament are really not the team that wins. There's always something that you pull out of the NCAA tournament from some other team or some other great event in the NCAA tournament or some player, coach, something, right? And I think this year it's the number 15 seed Oral Roberts, isn't it? I mean, we're always going to remember this little run that Oral Roberts made. Yeah, it's definitely the the team that everybody's going to think back on a few years down the road and go, whatever happened to those guys? Yeah. Where did they go? What are they doing? Did any of them go pro anywhere? You know, yeah. were any of them a free agent to the NBA? Or did they go to the G League? Or did they go overseas and play anywhere? What happened to those guys? I remember them being such a well-balanced, well-playing team. And then all of a sudden they lost that game. And it's like, what happened to some of those guys? Yeah. Yep. And, and that's usually what you get from some of those mid-majors that are at the 14, 15, 16 seeds. It's like you you listen to their story, you buy into it, you build into it, but then once their tournament run is done, it's like whatever happened to them. Right, right. And we're talking again about the Oral Roberts team that's been on a magical little run here, but ends up 
um, dropping a heartbreaker to number three, Arkansas, 72 to 70. And um, Oral Roberts went in at the half up by seven. And here, and everybody's like, hey, we better turn the game on. If I'm not, if you're not watching it, you're turning it on when you see the halftime score, Oral Roberts up by seven. So everybody was tuning in for that second half. And uh, what a great second half it was. Um, all the way around, a lot of points being scored. Arkansas put up 44 in the second half. Oral Roberts, 35. Um, but again, Oral Roberts comes up short, 72-70. to 70. Max Amos, uh, 25 points, two rebounds, and, and four assists. I like to call him Super Max. Um, and Jalen Tate for Arkansas, 22 points, four rebounds, six assists. Arkansas's win against Oral Roberts was their 10th double-digit comeback win this season. Each of their last five wins have come after trailing by double digits. Pretty amazing. Um, the Razorbacks stopped uh, Oral Roberts from making history as Oral Roberts could have, be, could have been the first number one 15 seat to ever, really, ever reach the Elite Eight, and that would have been something. Um, Super Max's last second three-pointer hit the rim and bounced off, and the Razorbacks won, and I felt so bad for Max. I mean, he he just pulled up the shirt on his jersey and just put it over his head, and you know, lots of emotions after that one, after missing that shot. And it's amazing he got it. You know, he went all the way down the court. They inbounded the ball. He went all the way down the right sideline, and um, he was able. And I forgot how many seconds were left on. Like maybe it was like six seconds. He raced all the way yeah, down. Yeah, about the, six seconds. Yeah, and he had a great look, you know, and it just just didn't go in. And Max is the first player with three 25-point games for a double-digit seeded team in a single NCAA tournament since Steph Curry in 2008 for Davidson. Jalen Tate, again, led Arkansas 22 points. Um, he had a strong second half in that game. And um, Super Max, 25 points, led the team. Um, Max and Kevin O'Banner etched their names in NCAA tournament lore, right, with their heroic individual performances that propelled uh, Oral Roberts, right? And we had two of these guys. We had we had a Amos and O'Banner, and both of those guys were like a lethal one-two punch in the NCAA tournament, huh? Exactly. It's like when you want to think about some of those one-two punches in some of the performances from the schools that are not going to win the tournament. Yeah. The only other ones that you might think of would be like when uh, Florida Gulf Coast was in there or maybe even the guys from UMBC when they beat Virginia and then came along to the second round game and got stomped on. But it's like remembering those names because it's like those are the guys that made the tournament history what it is. It's not the guys that you remember 10 years down the road that were NBA stars because it's like, wait, what school did they go to or who, who else did they play with? Because all you're thinking about is what they've been doing since. And then with these guys, it's like you remember what school they went to and what NCAA tournament they were in. It's just like the the group of guys from Loyola in 2018. You remember who was on that team, and the fact that here it was three years later. Some of those guys are going back and almost getting to the Final Four again. And you're thinking all this time, like there's these little guys that are making like the Hoosiers type story right. for their school, and they get as far as they can. Granted, they didn't get to the Final Four in the National Championship game, but they got to as far as they could. Each game after this was like the National Championship for them. So if they won it, their school was going crazy for days. Like when Oral Roberts won their uh, Sweet Six, or not their Sweet Sixteen game, but their um, game, their 
game in the round of 32, the crowd at the Navy Center went nuts. Right. Because it's like they didn't expect anything to get there. And they have this memory now for the rest of their lives of being there to see this, this team win and get that far. So to them, it felt like their national championship yep. was to get that far. Yep. Yeah. O'Banner recorded three consecutive double-doubles while averaging 23 points in the NCAA tournament. And uh, Max averages 26 points during the run. And a couple things here. on One first on O'Banner. I mean, the guy can shoot threes. That's the amazing thing. He was so accurate from three. And I remember at the end of the games, you know, you foul the guy and the guy doesn't miss his free throw. So those are two great things about uh, O'Banner, you know, a guy like him in the NCAA tournament, which, what you want to do in all these games is you got to hit the three and you got to make the free throws when they count. So that's great about him. And then Max, the thing about Max is he's got like a jet pack, doesn't he? All of a sudden he's running down the court and then he shifts it into like some kind of supersonic gear. And it was amazing to watch. Exactly. He's like kind of trying to hedgehog on the on the court there. It's like he gets to a certain spot where he knows he needs to put in into overdrive, and he just goes. And it's fun to watch because it's like here's this little guy that you don't think he's gonna do anything, and he's throwing up 26 points a game. Yeah, yeah. And leading his team along with another guy putting up 23 points. It's like where did these guys come from? Where were they found? Yeah. And they just do the things that a lot of the top guys want to do. But never do. Yeah. Because their ego gets in the way, and these guys are just playing basketball. Right. And sometimes we see two guys on a lesser, you know, on a on a team with a high seed in an NCAA tournament. But a lot of times those guys are the same type of player. Here, these two guys complement each other so well because they do different things. They definitely do. They're, yeah. They're like one of them is almost like the Bobby Hurley to the others, Grant Hill or Christian Leitner. Right. Yeah, where they do the things that everybody needs them to do, but they're not the type that their ego gets in the way of who's going to get the ball and who's going to do the work. It's I yeah. got it, you got it, just do it. Right, and you got to wonder if Ohio State, you know, if they're still reaming from that loss to them. I'm sure they are because those guys they live and die by the fact that they're Ohio State. Nobody's going to beat them. Right, and when they get beaten, they're like, "What happened?" Must be tough for a team like Ohio, school like Ohio State, you know, as a number two seed, have to sit and watch the NCAA tournament. I'm wondering if they're even watching it. They may have just wrote it off and said, you know what, I'm even watching this. Who knows, right? Possibility is just true on that one, but they may <laughs> also have been like Virginia back when they left UMBC and said, I want to see what this other team is going to do for us to be able to say, now this is our time because we've lost to the guy that we weren't expected to. Now we can make our run, and that's what they did the next year when they won the national title. Yeah. So yeah. who knows? It's possible that now that Ohio State's seen this, they go for a national title run next year if they're if they're having their guys come back. Right. So now you know Oral Roberts coach Paul Mills. You know now people might be courting him right for some from a, for a different job now, right? It's quite possible, and he actually came from uh, Scott Drew's bench. He yeah. was on Scott yeah, that's right. coach at Baylor for a while. So Right, this is almost <laughs> like the this is almost like the Homer Drew thing when when Valpo made it to the sweet sixteen and all of a sudden, you know, he's being courted by St. Louis and everybody thought Homer was gonna go go somewhere, right? Yeah. 
or even like the Andy Enfield situation when he was at Florida Gulf Coast, and then all of a sudden he gets put gets his name thrown in the air on the radar of this position's open, this position's open, this one's open. He ends up at USC in 2014, and yeah. he's been there now ever since. So it's it's one of those cases where he's going to be one of the guys talked about, but is he going to want to leave a school that he's still in the process of helping build back into a winner? Yeah. After Scott Sutton had some terrible times because Scott Sutton got into the situation where Valpo left the conference, they became kind of the face of the conference. Then they left the Summit League, went to the Southland for a couple of years, got their backsides handed to them in a league they didn't belong in, but was only there because of their baseball team. And right. then they went back to the Summit League because they're like, we got to do something to, because we're just getting beaten up here. Like their baseball team couldn't even handle the Southland. Right. Yep. Yep. All right, let's move on and uh, talk about the Houston-Syracuse game, number two-seeded Houston Cougars versus the number 11-seeded Syracuse Orange. And if you didn't think Houston, you know, a lot of times a lot of people don't believe these numbers. Hey, you know, we give up the least amount of points than anybody. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, it depends on who you're playing and so forth. So if you weren't a believer in the Houston uh, style of defense – you were a believer after this game because they just put in, they just got, they just locked down on the orange, didn't they? Yeah, their their defense is so locked down that you can't even get a shot because they're on top of you already. Right, right. Buddy Beheim for uh, Syracuse, twelve points, six rebounds, and an assist. And Justin Gorham uh, for Houston, thirteen points, ten rebounds, and two assists. With their uh, win over Syracuse, Houston will be the first team ever to play four double-digit seeds in a single NCAA tournament. And this is wild, right? What are, I mean, they had a <laughs> they have a pretty good go here. They in this tournament they played uh, 15 Cleveland State, 10 Rutgers, 11 seeded Syracuse, and you know they beat the 12 seeded Oregon Oregon State. Um, but they're going to see a different whole whole world, I think, when they got to play Baylor in the Final Four, which we'll talk about in a few. Uh, Houston held Syracuse to 46 points, their fewest ever in an NCAA tournament game. Quentin Grimes scored 14 for Houston. Uh, Justin Gorham had 13 points, but more importantly for him, 10 rebounds in that game. And the Cougars got a strong effort from uh, uh, Giroux, Dejan Giroux, who's just like a, you know, Guy is like something else. He's got a vertical that's off the charts. He can, you know, he's long. He can leap. He he finishes with nine points, eight rebounds, eight assists, while leading the def- defense uh, and kept Beheim in check. I mean, the guy, the guy is the guy's just all all over the court, and he's got and the guy just gets in your face and just suffocates you on D, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, his role in this game was basically to shut Bayheim down, which he yeah. did. Plus, he contributed in three categories that basically made him seem like he was the unknown Magic Johnson type with the nine points, eight rebounds, eight assists, almost having a triple-double. Right. From a guy that basically looks like a lanky forward who's basically going to be putting up every shot he possibly can. But in this case, he didn't put up that many shots. Made his points, but did the work that he needed to on defense to keep Beheim in check and keep the defense going because they saw that he was putting in his effort doing his job, and they're like, we got to meet this and match it and even beat it, and they did, which is what led to this victory for Houston. Right. 
and uh, Houston, the Houston Cougar team, you know, including uh, Giroux, harassed Syracuse into 28% shooting, including five for 23 performance from three-point range. And Beheim managed just one first-half basket and finished with 12 points on three for 13 shooting, including one for nine um, for from three points. And, you know, leading up to this game, I mean, Buddy Beheim was making a big name for himself here. And uh, this was like the kind of game if Buddy Beheim got, got going again, we would still be talking about him, right? Because it kind of just, after this game was over, it kind of just shut the Buddy talk down too, didn't it? Pretty much. I mean... He's one of those guys that, as long as you you're watching Syracuse play, you'll talk about him. But once Syracuse isn't on TV or being talked about, it's just an afterthought. Yeah, because he's just one of those guys that he's more of the quiet type when he does his work. Right. But he makes noise with the fact that he put in the work. Yeah. It's just a matter of once he gets done, he's on to the next game. He doesn't care about what happened the last game. He just moves on to to whatever the next opponent's going to be. And in this case, I think he's only a junior, so he should be back next year unless for some reason he decides he's leaving to go somewhere else, whether it's right. by transfer or he, w- he wants to try to see what the NBA waters are like. Yeah, yeah. Well, the win for uh, Houston marks the school's first trip to a regional final since reaching a second straight NCAA championship game in 1984 with Hakeem Olajuwon and Coach Guy Lewis during the famed Phi Slamma Jamma era. And I remember when I was watching this game, um, I can't remember who the announcer was, but he called Phi Slamma Jamma a dynasty. And I was like, well, wait a second. I'm thinking, you know, as good as they were, they didn't win a national championship. They ended up losing to Georgetown and won and lost to North Carolina State on that buzzer beater. And... um you know, I mean, it, what a great team they were. You know, Clyde Drexler, Kim Olajuwon, uh, Larry Meshu, and a few other guys there, obviously. But, you know, calling them a dynasty, I mean, you know, they're short of a dynasty. you got to win to be a dynasty, you know. <laughs> well, but the other thing he may have been looking at is the kind of dynasty that was also the same as the Buffalo Bills in the 90s. Right. Super <laughs> yeah, they lost. one of them. Right, and right. And like the precursor to that. Right. The word dynasty is always a funny word for me. When you break it down, it's dynasty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I guess that can include Phi Slamma Jamma because they definitely died nasty in that Jim Valvano game, <laughs> right? Uh-huh, that Lorenzo Charles shot that became the uh, right. LU. Yeah, yeah, what a, what a crazy scene that was. All right, we'll, move, we'll keep moving here. So now let's talk about the number one seeded, Gonzaga Bulldogs, uh, 83, Creighton, 65. And um, it was like a, uh, a uh, I don't know, it was like a scrimmage, wasn't it, for Gonzaga? Pretty much. Once they, once they got out to a strong lead, it was over. Like, right. They just kept running up and down the field, and Creighton couldn't keep up. No, could not keep up. Gonzaga went in with an 11-point lead at half, and then, Outscored him in the second half. Marcus Zagorowski, I like that kid from Creighton. 19 points, three rebounds, two assists, plays with a lot of heart out there. Uh, Andrew Nemhard for Gonzaga, 17 points, four rebounds, and eight assists in that game uh, for Gonzaga. And just, you know, just another one of these clinics for Gonzaga. They can, you know, just beat you in so many ways. And, um, 
It's a great basketball team. There's no question about it, regardless of who they're playing. Um, but, you know, it's kind of funny. There's, you know, when you watch um, uh, Kenny, Kenny, Kenny Smith, right, and uh, Charles Barkley. Yeah. Charles ba- Barkley is okay giving Gonzaga a lot of credit. But Kenny Smith, I don't know, man. I heard him say, you know, he didn't like their schedule and all this. And he is really, you know, he's real tough on Gonzaga. I think he's starting to come around a little bit more, though. But um, I think they're going to have to win a national championship to get Kenny Smith to turn around. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're uh, on the right track with that. Because I, I do believe Kenny Smith was another one from North Carolina around the Jordan yeah. years. Yeah, And so he's basically saying Gonzaga's playing out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's paying attention to them because their games are always playing late. And they're playing the teams like Santa Clara, San Francisco, San Diego, Pepperdine. And it's just teams that either nobody's heard of or they're not paying attention to because after about 8 o'clock at night on the East Coast, basketball yeah. is over. Yeah. So yep. they don't they don't pay attention to ESPN at 10 o'clock at night on a Monday night or a Thursday night or even a Saturday night because usually out on the East Coast, 10 right. o'clock at night, you're out partying in somewhere, right? Yeah. So basketball is not your first thing you're going to think about, which is why in some ways this year worked out for Gonzaga because people they had more eyes on them due to the fact that they could play at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and not have to worry about people coming in because there were no fans at West Coast Conference games because most of the West Coast Conference was California. Right. And with most of California being shut down, they didn't have to worry about fans, so they could have played games at noon. Right. That's that's true. And uh, it's kind of funny. You know, Gonzaga's in it every year. I guess if you get it, get in every single year with a good team, maybe chances are you're going to win eventually, and maybe that's where Gonzaga is right now. Yeah. I think the way that this season went, so many of the, the bigger-name teams kind of said, you know, we're just going to go through the, the motions of the year, do what we can, and especially since most of you guys are going to come back next year anyway, when we'll have the fans back so that you can get your true uh, senior send-offs and be able to have your senior night where you get to give your speech, propose yeah. to your girlfriend or whatever the case might be, announce that you're having your your kid or whatever the case is. Thinking back to the Shield at Valpo, remember them, remember what they brought to the school, so you're always wanting to follow what they do. And especially if they stay all four years or even five, they stay for a grad year. Yep. It's kind of funny, you know, when you watch Timmy under the basket, you're – you start to wonder, like, how is he, how is he doing all of this? Because he's making it look so darn easy, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, the conference that he was in, most of those players are only playing for the love of the game. Yeah. They're not going to the NBA. They might go to the G League or they're going overseas. Right. Otherwise, they're just playing for the love of the game. So. Yeah, the funny thing, no one really has said this, but when I watch Timmy and you know playing playing as he is right now, and he's got that headband on. The first guy I think of is Bill Walton. You know, because Bill Walton had that same kind of savviness about him. Like, you know, Bill Walton always found out a way to get his shot off underneath the basket. And that's how Timmy is. He he kind of moves his body in a certain way where he's getting leverage over the over the guy that's guarding him. Or he, he takes a certain angle and is able to get that jump hook out. So it's sort of like that kind of thing that he just knows. You know, he knows how to move himself and get in position to either make that nice pass or or to be able to throw that jump hook in the basket, right? 
Well, you know, Bruce, that's how we do it in the College of Champions. I was <laughs> yeah. thinking back to when he was talking to Jay Billis and the guys on ESPN. Yeah. And he kept calling Jay Billis Jake. Jake Billis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazy. All right, so yep. let's let's move on here. We got Michigan and Florida State. And I wonder if anybody has found Florida State yet. Because they didn't show up, did they, for that one? Not really. I mean, their shooters just did not exist that night, that game. No. They this... had nothing. I, think, I don't think it was the lights being too bright. It was just they had nothing, and Javon Howard had his team ready to play. Yeah, and it really came out of nowhere because I thought this was going to be one heck of a game. But it was Michigan, number one seed Michigan, 76, number four seed Florida State. 58 and Florida State had 21 points in the first half and Michigan really you know was up by 11 but they could have been up by 20 that's how it felt Malik Osborne for Florida State 12.6 rebounds and assist Franz Wagner did I get that right Wagner yeah yeah um 13 points 10 rebounds and five assists and Hunter Dickinson 14 points and eight rebounds interesting guy to watch and Wagner 13 points 10 rebounds for Michigan those two guys were clicking. Uh, they forced Florida State off the mark that the Seminoles didn't score their 20th point. You ready for this? MJ Walker, you know, hit a jumper with 20 seconds, seven seconds left in the first half, and that's how they got their 20th point. Um, I got mm-hmm. I got some lowlights here for the Seminoles. 14 turnovers, including 10 in the first half that led to Michigan 16 points. No three-pointers over the first 24 minutes and only five of 20 for the game. Four of the makes came from Malik Osborne, who uh, led the Seminoles in scoring. Walker, uh, FSU's leading scorer this season, rolled his ankle at the 14-minute mark, and that was the last thing they needed. I mean, that was really, you knew it was over. I mean, you knew it was over before then, but you knew the final nail was in there when he got hurt. And by the time he came back with eight minutes later, they were down by 19, the Seminoles, and the offense was held uh, under 60 points for the first time this season. So just kind of a miserable performance and kind of like, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of Seminole fans were probably real upset because they were really expecting this one to be, a, you know, two big schools and a big game. And, uh, you know, Michigan, give the credit to Michigan too. I mean, they were in their face the whole game, right? Yeah, they were defensively hands down ready for this game to shut Florida State down as much as possible and they did it from the jump yep ACC teams finished uh, with a combined record of 4-7 and seven in the NCAA tournament that is the fewest wins and worst winning percentage by the conference in a single tournament which is which is kind of sad the Wolverines scored 34 of their 50 uh, paint points in the second half tied for the most paint points by a team and a half in this year's NCAA tournament they made one shot outside the paint in the second half. So where were the bigs, you know, for um, for FSU? They were they were not playing their game. And uh, I was going to say, if they weren't in foul trouble, they just were not in the game at all. Right. And to be honest with you, even when we were making the note about the ACC teams being a combined four or seven, yeah, that's four and four and seven. Nothing of it included Duke or North Carolina. Yep. Right. And that that just seems odd because that'd be. Automatic, at least four wins right there, just yeah. from those two teams. That's right, and uh, again, you know, not having Duke in the NCAA tournament is just a weird feeling 
weird feeling, mm-hmm. but uh, I didn't mind it to be honest. I mean, I like Duke, but it's just nice to see some other other teams, you know, get in there and uh, get some media coverage and and get a chance to play in some big games. Yeah, yep. and I think that's where Drake really benefited from that this year was right. not having Duke or North Carolina, plus not having that Ivy League school in there. Right, Since that's Ivy right. Ivy League didn't play basketball all season, nope. so they had no automatic bid. That opened up another at large. So a team like a Drake or a Florida State or any of those that didn't win their conference tournaments could get in. Yeah, that's a good point. Right, another, another you know, a little bit better team uh, than the than the automatic bid from the Ivy League conference not playing this year. So. Right. Although sometimes you know you're lucky you get a good Princeton team. I remember the days yeah. when Princeton would give people fits in the first round. Yep, with the, the Pete Newell. Pete Carell, yeah. Or Pete Carell, yep. yep. Playing his uh, Princeton style offense that basically was a four corners back door all around and take a last second shot. Yeah, they really they knew how to note the the shot clock. Right, they knew how to work the ball, and, and the time just evaporated. They were sort of like, a little bit like a Loyola team a little bit, you know, but um, but they really knew how to how to scare people in the first round. And I remember one year, Calipari, um, yeah, it was Calipari. They were playing a Calipari team. I forgot, I think it was Kentucky, though, and uh, just gave them fits in the NCAA tournament game. Mm-hmm. And Kentucky ended up winning, but uh, John Calipari was like, Sweating through uh through his uh you know two thousand dollar suit or so so, all right yeah. so let's go to the next game UCLA this went into overtime UCLA eighty eight and Alabama seventy eight and um this was some game some game uh, Jaime Yaquez for UCLA seventeen points eight rebounds three assists Keenan Ellis for Alabama ten points nine rebounds and three steals. Jules Bernard also scored 17 points. Singleton had 15, and Juzang, right? God, what a player. And Tiger yeah. Campbell added 13 apiece for the Bruins. Um, the Crimson Tide was just 11 of 25 from the foul line, missing both of its attempts in overtime, which I'm watching that, and I'm like, come on, man. you gotta, you got to step it up. I mean, that's the thing about the NCAA tournament is not a time to, to have a bad free throw shooting game. That will kill you, won't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially in a game that high up tempo from both teams, it's like if you miss free throws, you're setting yourself up for going. Yeah. How are we going to even get enough shots? Because of the amount of time that's going to get killed trying to make get that foul or whatever you have to do to stop them from scoring or going to the free throw line. Yep. And credit to Charles Barkley, you know, they after the game was over, Charles Barkley, you know, they wanted to get some great analysis from him. And Charles Barkley just said, they missed too many free throws, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And really, that was, the, that was the thing, right? Had the worst free throw performance by a team to attempt at least 25 free throws in the NCAA tournament since Kansas was 12 for 30 in the 2003 National Championship game against uh, Syracuse. I think that was probably the one where... Um, uh, let me see. Who was in that for Syracuse? There was Carmelo Anthony. That's right, Jerry Carmelo McNamara. Anthony's team, McNamara's team too, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Jerry McNamara. Yeah, UCLA has six players with ten plus points in an NCAA tournament game for the first time since 1994's first round versus Tulsa. Alabama finished seven of 29, 25 beyond the arc, 
And um, again, this was a great game. Went into overtime, and UCLA scored a ton of points in overtime, didn't they? Yeah. I don't know if that's a record, 23 points. They got to overtime, and it was like their time to say, you know what, let's put the dagger in and get this over with. Yeah. They they put in so much fight just to stay in the second half because they were outscored by 11 after outscoring Alabama by 11 in the first half. It's like the tide turned, literally, and – it just became crimson after the second or in the overtime when Alabama just kind of rolled over and died. Right. So you, do you think there's any, you know, are we ever going to see Bill Walton off the television if UCLA knocks off Gonzaga? No, I don't think we ever will. I mean, he's going to go absolutely out of his mind. Yeah. It's, it's going to be like Dick Vitale went to the West Coast yeah. and about 20 years right that's right literally yep all right it, let's get although in most cases that would mean that dick vitale also picked up about a foot in height <laughs> yeah yeah I, I can't believe he's still around i mean i dick vitale you know he's still on espn i always find it amazing that all these years have gone by and he's never been on cbs i think it's partially because cbs doesn't have the vast amount of basketball that espn does and the yeah. vision to have basketball around that long, especially when CBS is only like, we're only doing Saturdays. Right. At that time, and ESPN was wanting to get it every night if they could. Yeah. And that's kind of what Vitale wanted, was to be able to call a basketball game every night of the week. Right. If he could. Yeah, and he did. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, that's how he got who he, how, who he is. Yep. Yep. All right, let's keep it rocking here. We're going to go to another elite we're still in the Elite Eight. I'm sorry, we're still yep. in the Sweet 16, right? Yeah. Yep, it should be in the final game of the Sweet 16. Fi- final game of the Sweet 16 here, and it's a Pac-12 battle. Uh, USC 82, 6th ranked USC 82, 7th seeded Oregon 68. And, you know, USC beat them during the season, and they really beat them up in this one, mostly in the first half. I mean, USC came out, came out real hot, put two good halves together. And uh, pretty much dominated the Ducks. Um, and uh, Isaiah White scores 22 points. The seven-seeded Ducks floundered. Actually, flounder would have been better if uh, if the Dolphins were playing, right? Right. Yeah. After USC switched to a, a zone early in the game, unable to find the holes or get much of anything to drop over uh, and drop it in until late, a late rally came up short. The Ducks... The Pac-12's best three-point shooting team, 38%, went 5 of 21 for the arc. And part of the problem was the Mobleys, right? Just not letting anything, cleaning everything in the middle there. Yeah, they were they were basically the thing that stopped Oregon from getting anything done compared to what they were used to doing. Right, right. Nice win for USC. And uh, what do you think of, Mo- what do you think of uh, Mobley, the freshman, Evan Mobley? I honestly hope he sticks around USC for a couple more years. Yeah. Build on his body type, for one. Yeah. I think he just looks a little on the small side for the NBA. But there's also parts of his game that he knows he can work on to improve. Yeah. Whether it's on his defense to be stronger, especially on the perimeter, or if it's any part of his shooting touch that he needs to work on. He knows he, he can do it. It's just a matter of does he want to stay at USC that long. Right. It's not a seven-foot man game anymore in the NBA, though, right? No, 
Right. And you're going to have to hit those three. He's going to have to figure out how to hit those threes in the NBA. Yeah. But uh, yeah. great effort for USC, and they move on. Um, and uh, we'll talk about the game against Gonzaga in a bit here. So let's go to the Elite Eight. We're in the Elite Eight now, and the first game in the Elite Eight was once again the Oregon State Beavers, this time against the number two Houston um, Houston Cougars. And Houston gets off to a nice 17-point lead in the first half. And, you know, nobody gave Oregon State a, a shot at all after at halftime, you know, scoring 17 points. And again, you're watching Houston, like, what after that Syracuse game – and then after the first half of this game, you're like, man, maybe Houston could win a national championship just because their defense is, like, incredible. But in the second half, Tinkle and uh, Oregon State dialed it up. They've scored 44 points in the second half, outscoring Houston by 11. But, you know, it was kind of what we've seen this happen before. A team is down, right, and they make a run all the way, you know, tying the game make a big run, and then all of a sudden, after that run, there's a letdown, right? Yep, and that was definitely apparent in this game. Yeah. You saw it, especially at halftime, Oregon State, what are you doing in the Elite Eight? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the second half comes along, and they, they adjusted appropriately. It was just a matter of Houston had a bit more range to be able to keep them out of the, the win column. Right. Right. And uh, top performers, Oregon State, Maurice Kalou, 13 points, 5 rebounds. Dejan Giroux for Houston. Ten, another great line, right? 10 points, 8 rebounds, and 8 assists. Yep, he's consistent. Yep. It's the big thing you can give him is he may not put 20, 20, 20, and 20 up, but he will have his consistent numbers, and they count for everything. Right. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, just a great effort all the way around. And I also, a lot of respect goes out to Oregon State for fighting back. I mean, you had to appreciate that comeback that they made in the second half because nobody saw that coming, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that kind of tells you that this guy and this team has a lot of heart. The coach and the team have, have a lot of heart and great overall uh, season for Oregon State. And another one of those Pac-12 teams that just, you know, withstood the test of time there for a while. Yeah. And they were they were picked originally to be dead last in the conference. Yeah. So they went last in the conference to winning the conference championship to being a 12 seed that made the Sweet 16. And they were showing the Wayne Tinkle t-shirt that he had, that his family had made for him. That's right. Going from the Pac-12 championship where it was 12 teams to where yeah. now it's the Sweet 16. He wanted to wear that shirt again for the Elite Eight, but made the mistake of washing it, and it shrunk huh. on him. Oh. So it. oh boy! Which was unfortunate. Uh, otherwise, it would have been a great story, and especially had it been a case where they could have gone to a local t-shirt shop and made it something that went like twelve, sixteen, eight. Right. Yep. But I think with time and and COVID and everything, and their how they had to be in the bubble, it just wasn't able to be done. Yeah. Yeah, and he had a lot of support, right? A lot of family family watching the games and rooting him on, and uh, you saw that all the way through the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. Right, yep. All right, so let's go to the next game. And this, you know, I enjoyed watching this one. Number one, Baylor versus number three, Arkansas. And it was nice to see, you know, Chad, you're a graduate of Valparaiso University. I'm a graduate of the law school at Valparaiso University that unfortunately no longer exists. 
that's for a different show, <laughs> right? But what was great about this is you you know it's been a while, but now the Drew we now the Drews have like center stage again in an NCAA tournament, right? Homer's in the yep. st- Homer's there in the stands wearing his what Bale was he wearing a Baylor mask or a Baylor shirt? I know he was wearing a Baylor he shirt. He was wearing a Baylor shirt. Yeah. To the time that he was at a Baylor game, and then he had a he was also at the Grand Canyon game when they played Iowa. He and, and Janet Bowles, his wife, they were both at, both at that game because it was Bryson's first game with them. And I was ecstatic about the fact that both Bryce and Scott were in this tournament because it meant that Homer didn't have to fly all over the country. He right. can just go from, I think they both live in Arizona now. He could just go into Indiana and see all the games Yep. by way of rental car. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and that was it was great to see. And uh, I'm going to say this now. I was going to say it later, but I'll say it now. I mean, you know, I think now Gonzaga. I think this is a different thing now. I think now maybe Gonzaga might start feeling some pressure, right? I mean, you know, so far Gonzaga, Norfolk State, Oklahoma, Creighton, USC. You know, now they find themselves playing. Um, you know, UCLA, Gonzaga, and maybe a date with Baylor. But I think now you're going to see a little, and they got a great team, don't get me wrong, but the, the pressure is going to build. It has to build. And when if they get to the championship game against Baylor, looking to, you know, be 32-0, and 0, I think it's going to be, isn't it? By the time they get there, um, if I got that right, I think I do. They'd be 31-0 by that time. By that time, right. And here they are trying to be, you know, the undefeated team. The last one was Bobby Knight's 1976 Indiana Hoosier team. And here they are playing a national championship game in Indiana. Probably the worst place for them to come and play it, you would think. And now have to maybe look at the Drews on the other side of the court. And I don't know. Maybe there's a chance that General uh, Robert Montgomery Knight might even be at the national championship game. So they're going to have to walk through the state of Indiana, all the way through Indiana, beat the legendary, I guess, try to tie the legendary Bobby Knight team with two Hoosiers, you know, the coach Drew and the uh, Homer Homer coach Drew. So there's a lot there, right, for Gonzaga to have to have, you think there should be some pressure in all of that. I think there's going to be more pressure on if they get to the championship game undefeated and especially once the second half hits, if they're in a close game instead of something where they run away with it, like if they're up, say, 40 to 24 at halftime, right. and they comfortably feel like they've run away with it, that they're going to feel more pressure because of the fact that it's like, how much are we going to win by? And how is this going to feel to be undefeated and win that title? Or is it going to scare them half to death and Baylor's going to come back and beat them handily? and go, you guys overthought this game too much. Overthought this undefeated thing. Probably should have lost the game somewhere early in the season, whether it was a non-conference game or it was to stay a Pepperdine. Right. Yeah. Well, what I'd like to see at the end of the night, Monday night in the championship game, is Mitchell with the ball, tie game. They cleared out to Mitchell at the top of the key with the basketball. With about 10 seconds to go in a tied game. That's what I want to see. I, I honestly think that would be a better scene if it was the game was at Hinkle instead of at Lucas Oil. Yeah. Because you think about back to the, the actual team that 
Hoosiers is based off out of Milan, Indiana. Right, right. And little Bobby Plump. Yep. And his pressure to get midcourt and take that shot that won it for them. Yeah. And have to be the same kind of thing for Baylor when they're that close to knocking off Gonzaga. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Potential amazing storylines for the championship game, no doubt. All right, so we'll get back. We'll go back to reality a little bit here and go Baylor 81, Arkansas uh, 72. Justin Smith for Arkansas, 10.6 rebounds and three assists. Macy Oteague, 22 points, five rebounds, uh, two blocks. And, uh, you know, Macy Oteague scores points, but it's sort of like you don't realize that the game's over. He had 22 points. They seem to be like those silent type points, but he hits a lot of threes. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. He definitely had, when he got the ball, he took his shots, but he didn't make them the type of shots that you like. Right. Went crazy about it. It was just, oh, I made the shot. Let's get down and play defense. Right. In this game, it's though, like, you know, we've been there before. We yeah. Know what to do. Yeah. Baylor came out quick, didn't they? In this one. Yes. They really did it. It felt like it was going to be a track meet for these two old swag foes. Right. Because they were back from the Southwestern Athletic Conference back before the Big 12 and the swag merged together. Right. And that was a great conference, uh, the Southwest Conference. What a great conference that was, especially for football with Arkansas, Baylor, Texas, Texas A&M. Um, just a great conference. And uh, I, that and the Big Eight, I, the Big Eight was a great conference too, with Oklahoma yeah. and Nebraska playing football every year. Um, yeah, and yeah. Those, those were the two conferences that merged to make the Big Twelve. Right. In the long run. That's right. I wish one year they could just have a retro season. That would be fun to actually go back to where you have right smaller conferences and not just the ones that are in there to just make extra money for everybody. Yeah, yeah, that would be nice. Jared Butler, 14 points and five assists. Davion Mitchell shook off early foul issues to finish with 12 points and six assists. Like I said, in the first few minutes of that game, you were saying, Gonzaga who? Nobody, I mean, they looked like nobody could beat them the first few minutes of that game. Yeah. I mean, it was like they were running drills in practice. Yeah. They were They were basically playing the style of basketball they played in the Big 12 right. against the team that the same kind of situation in the SEC. Yeah. Yep. Alright, we'll keep it going. Number one, Gonzaga. Number six, USC. And coming into this game, people call this an intriguing matchup because of the Mobleys and Gonzaga is not used to playing against a seven-footer and another tough guy like Ivan Mobley underneath. And, you know, a lot of people thought, okay, this is going to be a good one. Good one. And then Timmy just comes in there and just says, no, this isn't happening. And Timmy, you know, just was unstoppable in the first few of that game. Gonzaga put up a 49 spot in the first half, took a 19-point lead in the halftime. And, um, you know, the second half was kind of a wash. It was kind of just like a cup. There was no, no, not for one, there was not one point in that second half you thought USC was ever going to come back and win the game, right? Yeah, there, there was no point in the second half when Gonzaga really put the dagger in. Yeah. Because after they were up 19 points at halftime and almost had a 50 spot, they were like, we've got the game in the bag already. Right. I mean, we're looking at now trying to be the first team to get to 100 points this tournament. Yeah. And then they just got so content, and by that point they were ahead that Mark used to pull the starters mm-hmm. and be able to have some of the bench guys finish out the game. Yep. Yep. Isaiah Mobley, 19 points. 
seven rebounds and three assists. Jalen Suggs, 18 points, 10 rebounds, and eight assists. And you talk about Jalen Suggs and Jared Butler. I mean, what a matchup that is, huh? If they get to that yeah, game. Yeah, that's going to be a fun one. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Timmy, Timmy for Gonzaga, you know, 23 points, five rebounds, you know, just all around. Gonzaga shot 44% in the second half and only 50% for the game. <laughs> yeah. It's being generous. <laughs> right. That's right. So, so that takes us to the end. That, that takes us to the final four, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. So let's just look at this for a second here. So Gonzaga, they beat Norfolk State, Oklahoma, Creighton, and USC to get to this point. UCLA beats Michigan, BYU, Abilene Christian, Bama, and Michigan. They had actually five teams to beat because of the first four game. Yep. Baylor beat Hartford, Wisconsin, Nova, and Arkansas. And this is what we talked about earlier. Houston, 15 seed. Cleveland State, 10th seed at Rutgers, 11th seed at Syracuse, and a 5th seed Oregon State. And, man, that's a nice little road they had for themselves. But they earned getting there with their defense. So um, so we got Houston versus Baylor, right? And on paper, you got a number 2 seed and a number 1 seed, right, on paper? Yeah. Right. So here's some here's some things I we're going to throw out there to everybody, right, to, to think about here. Well, Houston be able to exploit Baylor's weakness on the defensive glass and turn it into a lot of second uh, second shots. What do you think? I honestly don't think there's, there's going to be that possibility because I think Baylor's going to do a lot of running up and down the court that Houston's not ready for. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of fast breaks and layups. Right. So there won't be enough opportunity to get second chances. Yeah, and I think what Baylor wants to do in this game is run run more than – than usual because, you know, you don't want to play. I think they don't want to play half-court basketball against Houston, right? No, nobody does. Right. So that's, I got it there. So the next one, will Houston simply be able to make enough shots to keep up with Baylor's high-powered offense? And I think not. What do you think? Not unless Houston has some way that they can slow down their offense so that Baylor is having to focus so much on defense to keep, Houston from doing anything, but right. I just don't see that happening either because Baylor will be scrappy. Right. Will Baylor allow the Houston guards to ever get into rhythm? No. I, there's no. no other way of saying other than no. Right. Right. And will Baylor hit enough threes at the other end to win and advance to the national championship game? What do you think? I honestly don't think they're going to need the three-pointer as much as a lot of people think they will. Mm-hmm. Because with their ability to run up and down the court and get the fast breaks, they may put 50 points up on the fast break side and not need a three at all. Right. So you think they're going to be – are we going to see Giroux on Mitchell, you think? Or you think they're going to be in that zone? I'm thinking they're going to try to play the zone as long as they can. But if they have to go man, then, yeah, we'll see uh, Giroux on Mitchell for sure. That'd be an interesting matchup on the watch. Yeah. Or even if they went like a zone and one, where it was basically everybody else is in a zone, but Drew is on Mitchell all the time. Right. Like the old box and one. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I've, I've picked Baylor to win the national championship over Gonzaga, so I'm going to have them 
going over Houston for sure in this one. I think Baylor's just, you know, you know, Houston, Houston is good. They play great defense, but I think Baylor will find a way. I think they're going to run more, try to open it up, not play half-court basketball. If um, if they're in the zone defense, Houston, there's going to be some shot opportunities, opportunities for Macy Oteague from outside to hit some threes too. So um, I got I got Baylor. Yeah, I had Baylor winning this game all along. And yeah. It's just, but they weren't going to be playing. They were playing uh, Houston in this one. I had them playing Illinois. Yep. Yeah. You know what? I think we might have missed one game. We didn't talk about the UCLA-Michigan game, did we? Or did we? No, I don't think we did. We didn't talk about the UCLA-Michigan game, so we forgot one game. That's my fault. And that was Johnny Juzang game, right? Juzang's 28 points, a two-rebound game, uh, 51-49, where Michigan just, uh, you know, couldn't pull off the win. uh, Wagner had a few shots at the end and, um, you know, couldn't sink him, right? Yeah, it, it was just one of those games where Michigan was kind of in over their head. Right. UCLA played their game, and it, it made Mick Cronin look like he belonged to UCLA for longer than what he's been there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we're talking about UCLA now, too, because UCLA is going to be playing Gonzaga, and we're going to talk about that game. But UCLA advances to the 18th Final Four, the second most of all time after North Carolina's 20. Um, the Bruins are the sixth double-digit d- seed to reach the Final Four since seeding began in the NCAA tournament in 1979. And good for UCLA. And Johnny Juzan can really play, can he? For sure. He's one of those guys that he does the things that need to be done. Yeah. And does them so well. Right. Right. Good. Nice year for Michigan, what do you think, for them? Yeah. Yeah. Good year for Michigan there. Just fell a little short in this one. Just, you know, it's one of those games where – they had some opportunities at the end. They just did not convert. And it was kind of funny because, you know, um, Jalen Howard, Jawan Howard, I should say, called some timeouts there at the end, and I thought he was dialing something up. But then when they came out of that last sequence, when they came out of the timeout, it wasn't like they really had anything set up. Yeah. I think he was just kind of waiting to see what UCLA was going to do, but they kind of left a big signal for him, and he's like, well, now I don't know what to do, but I can't really call a timeout. Because I think at that point, it was going to be a Chris Weber situation where he was going to call a timeout he didn't have. Yeah. And lose the game at the free throw line with the technical. Right. Yeah. Which I think also, if I remember correctly, if that had been the case, Javon Howard would have been thrown out of the Four game. Sure am. Gonzaga versus UCLA. Will Gonzaga's defense present problems for UCLA's offense? Or are we going to see a high-flying, high-scoring game here? It's going to definitely be high-flying and high-scoring, but I think Gonzaga is going to find some ways to be able to slow UCLA down. Like The game, you'd think, would probably be somewhere where both teams are in the 90s, but I think it's going to be a case where it stays somewhere closer to the 70s, maybe 80s. Yeah. Yeah, it could be, could be, you know, because both teams can play. I mean, there's, you know, both teams can play some defense when they when they need to. Yeah, and this will yeah. be one of those games where they'll both show up on defense for sure. Right. Will UCLA stop Timmy in the paint? I don't think so. It'll be tough, but 
I think a lot of it's also going to be can the guards get the ball to Timmy. Yeah. With Juzang and Yakez and Bernard and Campbell, it's like if they're playing some tough uh, traps, are there going to be possibilities where Timmy or Kispert could even get the ball to get to the paint? Yeah. The next question is going to be, you know, Juzang, Yakez, Jules Bernard, and Tiger Campbell. Are we going to be talking about those guys, or are we going to be talking about the Kisperts and uh, the rest of the gang there uh, in Gonzaga? I don't know that you're going to be talking about all four of them as, as one. Yeah. It'll probably be you're talking about one of them yeah. running the whole show that night. Yakez is a tough guy, too, though. You know, he makes some big shots. Yeah. He, he's definitely one of those clutch players, but it's, it's going to be one of those where it's not going to be you're talking about all four. It's going to be one or two. But in most cases, it'll probably just be Juzang or Yakez, and that's it. Yeah. Bernard and Campbell may be shut down. Yeah. Now, this might be the most important question out of all of them because here it is, right? Will UCLA have a scoring drought in this game maybe because of maybe just having some a stretch of poor shooting or maybe Gonzaga is playing some solid defense? But when you're playing Gonzaga, you can't have a drought. You can't have that, like, you know, we all watch these games and like four minutes go by, no scoring, six minutes go by, no field goal. Right, UCLA cannot get themselves in that kind of position. They have to try their best to stay in this game all the way to the uh, commercial timeouts, right? Yeah. I mean, if Juzang or Yakez get shut down, I don't know that Bernard or Campbell are going to be able to no. pick them up to be able to carry the rest of the way through. So, I mean, you shut one of those two down, and there's going to be a, sharp, a scoring job for sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's really a big thing, and that... That you know, I think if there's no scoring drought, you know, UCLA has a chance to you know to stay in this for the long haul. But um, it's going to be tough. Can UCLA create turnovers into points? If there's no possibility that Gonzaga is playing any kind of defense to keep Juzang and Yakez from scoring, then easily Bernard and Campbell could be putting some pressure to create turnovers and and lead to fast break points for either Juzang yeah. and Yakez for sure. Right. Yep. But if, if UCLA is not, or not UCLA, but Gonzaga is not giving them that chance, then no, there won't be a way. Yep. All right, that leads us to one only question. Who's winning this game, Gonzaga or UCLA? I think I, think I know the answer. Go ahead. I've got Gonzaga in this one. I just don't see a first four team winning six games Yeah. to get to the tournament, to the championship game. Right. I mean, this is this is where we're talking Virginia Commonwealth territory. Because <laughs> when Jack Smart had them get to the Final Four, that was through the th- the first four game. And I just don't see UCLA being that team this year that could do it. Right. Not when you're going up against the the number one team in the country in pretty much every facet of the game. Yep. Okay, J- Chad. So that brings us to Gonzaga and Baylor. What do you think? I had Baylor winning it at the mm-hmm. start of the tournament, and I right. think they're still going to do it. I'm they with you. Got, they've got the fast break ability that Gonzaga may just be like in shell shock. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, I think, unfortunately, you know, maybe for Gonzaga here, you know, there's always a team over the years that's been able to beat Gonzaga, right? And... 
you know, that's why Gonzaga hasn't won a national championship. They always come against a team that's just a little bit better than them. And they walk through this thing, Norfolk State, Oklahoma, Creighton, USC. And I'm not going to play that. They got a bad schedule and all that nonsense at this point. It's too late for that. But I just think if there's a team that matches up, that can play any which way possible, you want to shoot the three, you want to penetrate, play defense, we can, they can do it all. And I think at the end of the day, we may find out that they're just a little bit more athletic too. And that could end up being the difference that Baylor may just have the, the athleticism that's needed to handle Gonzaga. Yeah, that would definitely be the case. Because I think if this was a situation where it was played in a smaller gym, more more in the way that the NCAA tournament used to be, where it was played on campus facilities and not played in these 407,000-seat arenas mm-hmm. with mostly corporate people there in the front rows and not the students and the, the fans. Yeah. You know, this, this has Gonzaga potentially winning it all the way, but I think the bright lights and the lack of having fans that are on top of the game like Gonzaga's used to when they're playing in the kennel or when they're playing at um, St. Mary's or some of the other schools in the West Coast Conference, they're not going to know what to do. Right. Yep. I agree with that. Well, Chad, guess what? It's time to close up shop again. We made it this far. (laughs) (laughs) We made it this far. So how many games have we covered now? We've covered the 52 games in the first two rounds. We've covered the Sweet 16. We've covered the uh, Elite Eight. We gave you our winners in the Final Four in the championship game. 65 games now that we've covered. Yeah. 68. Right, so it's time to watch the games, everybody. Have a good time. I mean, it's going to be a great night of basketball Saturday night. And Monday night might just be like... Well, Monday night is must-see TV. There's going to be no question about that. It always is, right, tournament time? Yeah. Yeah. And if it's not because of the game itself, especially for the fans that maybe their team is not in the Final Four or in the Final Four in the National Championship game at all, it's for that after the title's been determined when you get that one shining moment. Is your school going to be in it? If your school was in the tournament, how long are they going to be in it? what's going to be the feature of it most. Right. Is it going to be more the team that won it, getting a lot of the, the attention in it, or are there going to be certain plays or players or teams? Yep. Yep, for sure. All right, Chad. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll be talking some more college basketball. Maybe after the game we'll do some wrap-up show or something, right? Definitely. Yep. You can listen to the Fan Man Podcast on Spotify, Google, podcast apple podcast thank you for listening to this episode of the fan man if you like what you heard or disliked what you heard check out the fan man twitter page the fan man at the underscore fan underscore man underscore and tell me what you think 